Welcome everyone to The Lighthouse, a podcast series dedicated to providing advanced financial planning and wellness insights to clients and families we serve. My name is Jack Butler and my business partner, John Stanford and I are financial advisors with the Hatteras Wealth Management Group at UBS, located at 6100 Fairview Road in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm joined today by John Wolaschen, who is a strategist within our U.S. real estate and lodging group at UBS. John, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Jack, for having me, and I'm pleased to be here. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. And before we get into our conversation, John, would you mind sharing with us in the audience a little bit about your background, your career, and kind of where it led to where you are today at UBS? Absolutely. So I started my career at the tender years of 37 years ago. Uh, I'd like to say I'm a reformed investment banker. I spent my first six years doing uh, international M&A. I moved over to the analytical side in securities research uh, after that. And for the past now 31 years, I've been uh, predominantly a buy-side securities analyst. Uh, I've had the great fortune, even though I do specialize in real estate, of focusing on a lot of sectors over the course of my career. So I I have a pretty good grasp of, you know, most sectors out there and sort of the interplay economically between different sectors. I started looking at real estate, I think in 1994, if I remember. So that's kind of where I got my start in real estate. And in the 15 years I've been at UBS, I've focused exclusively on U.S. real estate. So that's commercial, residential, and lodging. Okay, fascinating. Well, it's certainly a hot topic these days, especially when we talk about real estate. I know a lot of clients think about residential real estate. And certainly within the last year or two, ton of buzz around residential real estate. I think everyone's seen their home prices go up significantly. Obviously, the whole interest rate environment that's been changing here recently has uh, certainly been a topic of interest. So um, what what do you think is, is going on here with respect to real estate? And uh, let's just focus on first just the whole interest rate environment and wanting to know if there are any leading indicators of mortgage rate changes. And is that good or bad news for either people who are either currently own a home or looking to buy one here uh, in the foreseeable future? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, interest rates going up in a vacuum generally are not great, is not great for the housing market. However, it's important to consider the base at which we're starting. And, you know, I can remember, I'm going to go back to 2018 when uh, we had a spike in rates and the 30-year the mortgage rate hit 5% for a couple of days. And I remember I happened to be watching CNBC on one of those days, and, and you would have thought the mortgage rate just hit 20%, which if some of your listeners are old enough to remember, actually happened back in 1980 and 1981. So I think it's important to put it in context. I, you know, I think the realities are, look, it was well 15 months ago, 30 year fixed mortgage rates were 265. Now they're calling 475. So I'm not going to minimize you know, a pretty significant move in rates, but the move from you know, call it three to four or three and a half to four and a half is a lot different than the move from four and a half to five and a half to five and a half to six and a half. So I don't want to minimize the impact, but it's important to put a little a, a little bit in context. I think when you combine 
the increase in interest rates we've seen recently with the extreme increase in home price appreciation that we witnessed, particularly over the last 18 months, it certainly does bring affordability into question more, particularly for the entry level or first time buyer or the more modest income buyer. I mean, that's unarguable. But, you know, interestingly, and there's a lot of ways to look at affordability, but one of the things that's important, the majority of people who buy a home, uh, they buy based on monthly payment, not price. And so one of the things we look at is the ratio of monthly payment to monthly household income. Uh, at the peak of the housing bubble, that ratio was about 31%. And that assumes a 10% down payment, which is about the average we see in the country today. That number today at current mortgage rates is about 27%. So while it's certainly up from where it was, I can't argue with that, it's still well below the housing bubble period. And so when I hear people trying to equate the two, uh, although they say in our business, it's very dangerous to say it's different this time, there are significant differences between the period during and you know during the housing bubble and leading up to the crashing of the housing bubble and today. So yes, do we do we think rates going up at the at the end of the day is an incremental negative? Absolutely. But if it helps slow home price appreciation, that actually would be a positive thing in our view because homes can't keep going up at the rate they are because it's just significantly out, outpacing you know, incomes. So I think people see the inflationary environment. They see the value of their homes skyrocketing. They maybe think about, you know, if I maybe want to downsize, well, where would I go? Because uh, nothing else is 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 really uh, affordable. So I think uh, just in terms of the comparison, I think it's very natural for people to kind of compare this to the mid two thousands, right? Because it, it feels similar. But talk about some more of the differences between what's happening now versus back in the mid 2000s, maybe just from a supply demand standpoint as well. Well, yeah. And I think the two key differences are, number one, it's the supply demand fundamentals. Currently, there is an absolute dearth of supply of both new and existing homes. Now, whether you look at supply on an actual number of homes available or months of supply, which is the way a lot of people in the industry look at it, what's considered a market imbalance is about six months of supply. This is a national number, and it will vary, obviously, by local markets. Nationally, there's less than two months of supply of existing homes, which is the largest portion of the market. And then new homes, if you actually cut the data properly and look at the number of actual new homes available for sale, that's also below two months. So we have an absolute dearth of supply. In some markets, it's well below one month. I'll be heading out to the Pacific Northwest next week to visit clients. You're talking about a half a month of supply. The other thing uh, that is significantly different is the quality of underwriting uh, by lenders and the behavior of borrowers. Back then, I mean, you heard all the stories about uh, no-doc, low-doc, uh, liar loans, they called them, or my favorite, stated income loans. Ninja loans. A stated income loan was, it was the lender asks you, how much do you make? You tell them a number and they say, okay. Those days are largely gone, which is a good thing. Uh, for anybody who saw the movie uh, The Big Short, there was a famous scene when Steve Carell is talking to the exotic dancer who says she owns six condos. I mean, a lot of those excesses are gone. Now, I don't want to tell you there are no excesses. There's always going to be excesses in markets. 
But generally, those are the two biggest differences. And I'd say the last thing I would add is obviously the the, the impact of the pandemic had a lot, a, a, you know, a lot of negative impacts uh, on people's finances, and there was a, a lot of consternation that when the government put in place the forbearance program, and forbearance is not mortgage forgiveness, it just allows you to defer your payments, that once that ended, it was going to lead to a mass increase in foreclosures. And we always disputed that. And the reason we disputed it was because of the way the programs were structured, which is that the you know one of the ways you could get out of forbearance was take your foreborn payments and let's just make it easy. Your mortgage payment's a thousand bucks a month and you miss 12 months of payments. A, it wouldn't ding your credit, and B, that $12,000 you owe, you wouldn't have to pay it back immediately. You could put it at the end of your loan as what's called the non-interest-bearing silent second, i.e., you don't owe that money until you either sell your home or your mortgage matures. And the data has, has panned out the way we thought it would. Now, has there been some uptick in uh, foreclosures? The answer is absolutely yes. No surprise there, but nowhere near the magnitude that we saw during the the housing bubble uh, the bursting of the housing bubble. So if we're not in a bubble, then I guess the next question is that where where do you foresee it going from here, the real estate market? Is, you know, is, the, is the interest rate environment and everything just going to slow the growth rate? Uh, is that what you're saying? Or like, at what point do we kind of reach a, a, a point where you know, par- uh, prices start to fall? Um, yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of that's going to depend on two things. Uh, and they are related. Uh, how high interest rates go, and what happenings with the Fed's quantitative tightening program. So, quantitative tightening is the the flip side of quantitative easing. And for any any of your listeners who don't know what quantitative easing or QE is, that's when the Fed was very active in buying both Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities in the market to provide liquidity. Well, quantitative tightening is the reverse when the Fed begins to unwind its balance sheet. And so, you know, I look at our the our house view, the chief investment officer at UBS, our house view for the for the 10-year treasury, which is a key benchmark. We're looking at something between, you know, called 250 and 275. So if we look at the historical spread between 10-year treasury rates and 30-year fixed mortgage rates, it's about 1.7 percentage points or 170 basis points. So that would put you at a mortgage rate that's a little below 5%. We think at a 5% mortgage rate or 45 somewhere between those two, that will slow the rate of price increases. Uh, but what it's not going to do, we don't think, is going to kill the housing market. There will be some demand destruction, again, particularly at the lower end. But you know, we don't see the supply the supply situation changing dramatically to the upside for a few reasons. Number one, you know, we talk to all the major home builders in the country. The biggest home builder in the country uh, cannot get access to certain materials because of the supply chain disruptions. And so you're seeing what are called cycle times, the amount of time to build a home have extended anywhere from eight to 10 to 12 weeks. So all these companies are putting homes on allocation and and, and delaying sales. Uh, now, the new home market is 10 to 15 percent of the home sales market. The balance is the existing home market. So if you think about it, if you're going to move, and you mentioned downsizing earlier, if you want to downsize, but you want to downsize within your own market, the question becomes, where am I going to go? 
because there's not a lot of inventory. If I'm going to leave the market, that's one thing. The other thing is uh, with all the equity people are sitting on, and that number is $25 trillion of homeowners equity, wow. uh, they're saying, okay, well, if I'm not going to move and I'm not going to downsize, well, rates are up, so maybe I can't refi. So maybe I'll spend money on just rehabbing my home. So what you're seeing is people are staying in their homes longer. They're aging in place longer. So while ultimately we will get more inventory, uh, we think it's going to be an evolutionary, not revolutionary price, uh, process. And so, you know, look, can, can prices decline in any market? Of course they can. But we see more a slowing at the rate of increase. And barring it, look, if we get a major recession or, God forbid, World War III, uh, you know, that's going to change the equation immensely. But working on the assumption that we have a slowing economy, which I think, you know, all economists, including us, think we will, but not a recession. Uh, we will see a slowing in the rate of home price appreciation. And some markets could see, especially the very expensive ones, could see maybe at the top some a blow off of some of the what we call aspirational pricing. So those are all great points. And I also have to bring up the, uh, the point of demographics as it pertains to this country as well, because being a millennial myself, uh, guilty as charged, I, I've, I've heard over the last, uh, you know, probably close to 15 years about how, you know, the, the demographic now in their 30s, right, they were never going to buy homes, they were never going to, they're always going to rent, they're always going to you know, be more mobile. And I think that that hasn't really played out, especially now that the millennial generation uh, overtook the baby boomers as the largest segment of the population over the last year or two. So can you just talk about demographics and just this next wave of, of a generation of people who are now in their mid-30s who are, you know, uh, having kids, having families, buying homes, trying to have more space and, and whatnot? I mean, talk about that dynamic as well in the real estate market. Absolutely. So if you look at uh, the age range, uh, the number of people in the age range between 18 and 49 it's about a hundred and low on 150 million people. It's a lot of people. The key home buying age is in the late 20s to early 30s. If you look at the average age of marriage and uh, for men and women, it's currently running for men about 30 and women 29. That goes, that's up from roughly 21 and 22 in 1970. Women are having children much later. So if you think about those quote unquote adult decisions, when we need more space, it's all being pushed to the right. So if a generation ago, the prime home buying age was in the mid 20s, it's now in the early 30s. And so if we look at the number of people in that, in that range of kind of 30 to 39, you know, you're looking at about 86, 85 million people. It's a lot of people. So there is a lot of you know, pent up and potential home buying. Now, they won't all buy. Some will rent homes. The single family rental market's been around for ages. It's now a professionally managed business. And so there are some people who will say, well, I want to try out or what I like to call putting on training wheels. I want to see what home ownership is like without all the cost in Michigas of actually owning a home. But we think that the demographics actually line up very well, not only for home ownership, but the rental market. And this is, we think, one of the great misnomers out there, that if housing is strong, rental can't be, and vice versa. And we have always disagreed with that. And that's why I gave you that range of 18 to 49, because we're looking at uh, whether you know both the millennial generation and the Gen Z generation. A lot of them are very, very different from, you know, us older or this older geezer anyway. They want and need more flexibility in their lives. 
So they, so a lot of that comes down to they are going to rent. The cost of home ownership is certainly gone up. I think we all understand that. And one of the biggest impediments is coming up with down payment money. Now you can get an FHA loan at a three and a half percent down, but that does bring you to having to pay more uh, FHA insurance premiums. And so the lack of wealth savings amongst younger people will certainly be an impediment. And then we can't ignore the $1.7 trillion in student debt outstanding. So I think the point that I want everybody to take away from this is we can have, because of the, the huge size of that demographic squat, we can have a very, very vibrant multifamily rental market, single family rental market and home purchase market all at the same time. Well, I think uh, to that point of affordability for that first time home buyer, I think I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal um, recently that talked about how on an inflation adjusted basis, the average price of a home in Seattle 40 years ago was around 170,000. And on an inflation adjusted basis, it's now close to half a million. Um, so you know, just that, that first time home buyer, right, is, is looking at, you know, a really challenging environment, depending on the location, obviously. But I think it also ties into just the, the timing of the, of the aftermath of the financial crisis. I think we were developing, you know, obviously overdeveloping in the mid 2000s, but then that just plummeted for about a period of five or six years. And now we're trying to catch up to it. But it's just a little bit, it's a little uh, too little too late, to say the least. So, yeah, um, well. I'll be in King County, uh, Washington, which is the you know the county where Seattle's located next week. I think the median home price, and that's the median home price in King County, is about seven hundred thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think the median home price in the entire state of California, and that's the entire state now, is almost eight hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. That's a starter home. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I saw the, um, the the piece that you put together about inflation and, and housing prices. And you look at some of those cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco or whatnot. I mean, we've all seen the stories of these thousand square foot kind of shacks that are going for seven figures and whatnot. It's 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 unbelievable. But um, to your point, it, it doesn't while it does seem distorted and, and while the interest rate environment, you know, is not as ideal as it was maybe a year ago, um, it's certainly, you know, there are some longer term trends that are very positive. So um, one thing I had to, had to bring up though, was the fact that our team is based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, being here in the Carolinas, we have been just, I mean, the last year or two, we, there's just been a, a flux of people moving here. I think I saw recently that one third of all home purchases in Mecklenburg County, which is where we are, we're from out of town uh, last year in 2021. So just, you know, what thoughts, if any, do you have just about the, the, the shift of people throughout the country, people being more mobile, people having a hybrid or even like a, an at-home virtual kind of work um, experience where they can kind of live wherever they want and what kind of pressures that's putting on different segments of the housing markets uh, all throughout the country? Sure. Um, um, and, you know, you mentioned hybrid work and flexibility, and there's a belief that all this has been driven by the pandemic. Now, did the pandemic exacerbate some of these trends? Absolutely. But, you know, th- th- these these intra-U.S. Uh, migratory patterns have been going on for quite some time. You know, we looked at the data just going back to 2010. And I live, I live in New York State, right outside Manhattan. And so I will tell you that there are five states, what I call the poster children, for market share donation of population and businesses. Three of them are here, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. The other two are Illinois and California. And what do they all have in common? Very high taxes, 
across the board of different types, uh, very unfriendly, uh, very business unfriendly regulatory policies and politics. And I don't want to make this a political conversation, but politics that have shifted in a very specific direction as opposed to being more balanced. And so, look, people move for a lot of reasons. Some people move for retirement and climate. Some people move for economics. Some people move for a job. But I think the trends are very clear, and this has been going on for a while, that you're seeing people say, look, uh, technology is, is allowing me to do my job uh, in multiple locations or different locations. And why should I live in New York State, which if you are the highest earners and live in Manhattan, you now have the highest marginal tax rates in the country. Uh, when I can go to Florida, and I'm not saying one should move to Florida, and I have zero state income tax. So I, I certainly understand it. So I think this is a trend that will continue. Now, it has, it has multiple impacts. And I think the biggest impact, particularly for locals, and I'll look at Nashville. I was down in Nashville a couple of months ago. Nashville has been one of the hottest markets in the country, and that's great for buyers who are coming from very expensive areas. You know, let's say you're coming from Silicon Valley, where you own a 1,200 square foot house that you paid $2 million for. Well, you get a lot of bang for your buck for $2 million in Nashville, but it's really not great for, the lo for locals who grew up there who are getting priced out of their own markets. Just to give you an example, I looked uh, in the re a report I published on housing not long ago. Uh, most people couldn't find Coeur d'Alene, Idaho on a map, uh, but it's a very, very beautiful area. Uh, their, their home price appreciation since 2019 has been 73%. Wow. Uh, and you're seeing a lot of people from Northern California, particularly the Bay Area, moving there. So I think these trends are, you know, will they ebb and flow? Certainly. Um, look, the bottom line is, you know, there are a lot of reasons people live in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. I mean, especially once, you know, the pandemic goes away. But the bottom line here is that a lot of people are voting with, with their wallets and they're voting with their politics. And, uh, you, know, I had, you know, we had a call with the deputy mayor of New York uh, based on a report we wrote about the future of New York. And we talked about a lot of the challenges that New York and the new mayor face, you know, whether it's economics, whether it's political, whether it's quality of life. And these are things that are really, really important. San Francisco uh, is a beautiful, beautiful city, and I love San Francisco. But, you know, look, the, the facts are the facts. Quality of life in San Francisco has deteriorated significantly. And I think the mayor is finally getting the message from the business community, if things don't change, you're, you're going to lose businesses. You're not going to get conventions. And so, you know, ultimately, you know, I think people like to extrapolate whatever's happening today forever mm -hmm. and a day. And look, there will be ebbs and flows, but I think the net takeaway I would like your listeners to, to get is that people are more and more open to being elsewhere from where they may have been, particularly in these dense urban or dense urban coastal markets like in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, or Chicago. It's probably also a reflection too of the strong labor market, right? I mean, as, as a time of recording, you know, unemployment rates sub 4%, 11 million available jobs. We've seen this great resignation factor take place. I think a lot of people are, you know, especially with technology, realizing that they can, they have options, right? And they can go and live and work from anywhere. And the quality of life is, is incredibly important. So we you know, talk about local 
uh, residents being able to compete against that though, that then brings its own challenge because we met a young couple who's roughly our age and he worked at Salesforce, she worked at Google and their first home that they were looking to purchase is probably in that two and a half range as a starter home, which, you know, for them, that was what they could do in San Francisco. But, you know, here in Charlotte, North Carolina, at least from a starting home standpoint, that could compete with that. So you're probably going to see a lot of local markets that are going to face that type of pressure as well, you know, over, over the long term too. So it's just a fascinating dynamic. And I know the pandemic didn't necessarily cause it, but it certainly accelerated it. Yeah, um, without, without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, so my last two questions, John, um, is really I've read about um, firms like Zillow, OfferPad, private equity groups, buying re- uh, residential real estate, um, and that's nearing supply even more. Um, what, to what extent is that true or actually happening from an institutional perspective um, sure. across the country? Any, any thoughts or, or feedback around that? So I, I think you need to separate it uh, into two different parts. So the Zillows, the offer pads and whatnot, they're, they're doing what's called iBuying. In fact, Zillow just dropped out of it. You know, yeah. iBuying is basically a buy, a buy, fix and flip market where you, you buy a home, uh, you put a few bucks into it and you try to flip it. Uh, I've always been very suspect of that business model. And uh, while I don't relish the pain that the employees at Zillow faced, uh, it was clear to me that their algorithms were all wrong. Yeah, that, that blew up pretty spectacularly. Yeah, right? it was. Yeah. So, I mean, I was always very skeptical of that. But the single family rental market, first of all, has been around for, for many, many years as a mom and pop business. It became an institutional business, you know, right after the global financial crisis. And we, we saw some pretty well-heeled private equity firms, you know, whether it was your Blackstones in the world, you know, come in and start buying homes. And it's gotten a lot of press and it's starting to make a lot of noise in Washington. But I think we have to put the numbers a little bit in context here. There's about 84 million single family homes in the United States today. Private equity, and I'll just put lump them in as private equity. They own somewhere around 350,000 of them. So it's a pretty small percentage. Now that said, there are two things to consider and remember Politics and economics often do not see eye to eye. When local residents reach out to their local politician or their uh, their their federal representative and say, "I'm getting I'm getting outbid by these all cash buyers from Wall Street," yes, that's going to make a lot of headlines. So that is a risk, and I want to be clear on that for the the single family rental players, even though I think. They do a good job. The other thing is there's been a lot of money raised in the, both the single family for rent and what's called build to rent market. In 2021 alone, there's been $50 billion raised by institutional investors for that business. Now, in the build to rent market, we need new, we need more homes. I mean, that's unarguable. Uh, so look, there's always going to be that, that tension between, uh, between the private sector and and the political side of life, because, you know, I always think about, you know, we think about asset liability, duration mismatches. You have capital providers who have long duration outlooks and politicians whose duration outlook is their next election. Now, it's just a reality. I mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful. And so that's going to be the push me, pull you. So what I I guess what I would urge, urge your listeners to focus on is to try to avoid the headlines because it's, you know, I'm old enough to remember the newspaper line, if it bleeds, it leads. 
And there are some realities that, look, these are well-heeled buyers who do have cash, but it's not like they're buying every home out there. I mean, they do have, they have investors, they have to make a good return on their invested capital. And so will they be a force in the market? Absolutely. Will they be the dominant force in the market? Uh, I don't think so. But are they growing? Are, are they growing presence? The answer is yes. Right. So my last question has to do with commercial real estate, just real quick. And um, you know, just from a local example, Duke Energy, which is a big employer here in town, announced that it was going to reduce its commercial real estate footprint by forty percent. And there are a lot of companies across the nation that are, that are making similar moves. Right. I think the two biggest expense for any company is commercial real estate and comp and, and benefits. So. I guess, what are your thoughts around commercial real estate? Is that going to face a lot of headwinds going forward as, as companies continue to make similar moves? Uh, just a high-level general anecdote of uh, what's happening with commercial real estate would be helpful. Yeah, I'm so, look, I mean, there's there's a lot of different parts of commercial real estate. If we're talking specifically about the office market uh, within <laughs> commercial real estate, which, you know, in your reference to Duke Realty, you are, uh, I would say a couple things. You know, our view has been pretty consistent um, on the office market. That, and I don't know whether this is going to be 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, but I do believe that the majority of people are going to go back to their office at least part-time, whether that is two, three days a week, some are going to go back full-time. But that said, there are going to be some structural changes. And we think one of the key structural changes is going to be a flight to quality. And what became very, very clear early on during the pandemic, and we've had the opportunity over the last couple of years to speak to many, many tenants, many, many landlords, is the the key areas of focus for tenants uh, is air, air quality and filtration, number one, number two, touchless controls, and number three, more open space, both internally and externally. So when we talk about this flight to quality, that means either brand new buildings or, um, or buildings that have been recently rehabbed. The best example I can give you is there is a, a building that opened recently in New York, right by Grand Central Station. It's called One Vanderbilt. It is an absolutely spectacular building. It's about 1.8 million square feet. I believe it has the highest rents in the country and is over 95% leased. Uh, so it has two things going for it. It's brand new, and it's right next to one of the biggest transportation hubs in the country. And so we think those are going to be some very, very big changes. As far as giving them office space, I mean, clearly, there are going to be some that will. But I can tell you, for every company that I've read that's giving up office space, I can tell you I've read five that are keeping the same or raising their footprint. It's So the answer is there's no one right answer to this. Uh, and so that's why I say be wary of headlines. But in terms of either if you own a B or a C quality building, particularly in a mixed location, that's probably going to be problematic for you. Uh, if you own an A quality building in a desirable market, is the cost of leasing more expensive? And what I mean by cost of leasing, i.e. the tenant improvement dollars you need to put in the leasing commissions? The answer is yes, leasing is getting more expensive. But we don't think the office goes away in its entirety, but there will be some shifts. And the last thing I would say is, you know, over the course of my 37-year career, there's been a trend of what's called densification, which is a fancy way of saying cramming more people into the same amount of space. And so in the old days, we used to allocate 250 to 300 square feet per employee. That number, leaving aside 
you know, the co-working companies just shoehorned everybody in. That number's gotten down somewhere to 150 to 175 square feet. Well, in what we hope is to soon be a post-COVID world, there's going to have to be some sort of de-densification. It's going to vary by company. And also because there's going to be a need for more open internal space, whether it's communal space, conference room space, we think people are going to be surprised in these higher quality buildings. There's going to be very little give up of space. So, you know, in the case of Duke, I can't speak to it specifically in another situation, but it's not going to be this, this wholesale, uh, like if I look at retail, the old adage in retail real estate was, we're not over-retailed, we're under-demolished. Uh, and clearly, we have too much retail in this country. Well, yeah, is there too much office space? Yes. Some of it will be converted to residential. Some of it will be converted to hotels. Some of it will be demolished. But uh, we are just not believers that the office is dead. Just some of it is going to be more challenged, and some of it we'll see actually very strong demand. And, and like how many, you said, for every one company that you've read where they're reducing their footprint, how many companies have been dying for more space for years or they've been growing like weeds over the past couple of years and they just haven't been able to find anything, right? So that reconfiguration process is, is likely going to happen as well. So that was interesting. I mean, um, just, 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 just to add yeah. one thing to that, sure. I mean, every headline that you read or we all read early on in the pandemic was... All, all, the te- all the space tech companies were going to give up because everyone's going to work remotely. Mm-hmm. The biggest lessors of tech space in New York City in the last 18 months have all been tech companies, either lessors or actually buying buildings. So, I, you know, I just say, you know, it's not what they say, it's what they do. And I'm looking at all the space all these tech companies are taking down and saying, there's got to be some value to the office somewhere. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have noticed that, right? I think at first, when everyone went from, you know, to working from home, a lot of people like the transition, they like the flexibility, right? They like kind of the change of scenery. But I think what more and more people are realizing is that they like that hybrid kind of approach, and especially for younger and newer employees, right? The, the training dynamic of, of having them come into an office is very important. So I think the fact that it's going to be a combination of the two, the fact that one or the other is not completely going away or it's not going to completely come back to the way it was, I think is, is the message there. So um, John, that was extremely helpful uh, for anyone in the audience who um, has a question about anything we covered today. Uh, please feel free to contact uh, me or John and we'd be happy to uh, put you in contact with John and his team. And uh, he'd be happy to answer any questions that you may have, but thanks again so much for your time. Appreciation. Uh, and we really appreciate you uh, joining us on the podcast today, John. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. And thanks for having me, Jack. And best best to you and your clients. Thanks so much. You have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Disclaimer, neither UBS Financial Services, Inc. nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It's important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business, that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review client relationship summary provided at ebs.com forward slash relationship summary.
or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, member SIPC. This information is being provided to you for your informational purposes only. It's not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, securities, or views stated herein. Any specific securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or a solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. This item is approved with edits for use with clients and prospects for public distribution approval date, March 30th, 2022, expiration, March 31st, 2023, review code IS2201732.